Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on an understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is Juan Acevedo, and I'm a research associate at the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss the unrest in Colombia in recent days and what it means. We're pleased to have with us Sandra Borda, Associate Professor of Political Science at Los Andes University in Bogota, Colombia. Professor Borda is the author of Parar para Avanzar, the Chronicle of the Student Movement that Paralyzed Colombia. She has been a visiting scholar at the Instituto Tecnológico Autónomo de México, the Mount Center for International Studies at the University of Toronto, and the International Relations Department at the University of Groningen in Netherlands. She was also a member of the Mission on Foreign Policy, a group of experts that, convened, that were convened by Colombian government to formulate recommendations for its future foreign policy. She's a columnist for El Tiempo in Bogota and co-host of the podcast Buceando en el Naufragio, which in English is diving around the shipwreck which examines news and topics in international relations. Professor Borda holds a PhD from University of Minnesota and master's degrees in political science from University of Wisconsin and in international relations from University of Chicago. Welcome, Sandra Borda. Thank you, Juan, so much for the, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, so my first question, uh, to open this, Colombia has had uh, tax reforms before. This is not the first one. Why has this round of tax increases led to such huge, huge protests in Colombia? And what's going on there? Um, I would say that before the pandemic, uh, we were already in the middle of a very difficult social and economic situation, right? I mean, two um, main characteristics uh, of our uh, situation were inequality. Of course, we were uh, one of the most unequal uh, countries in Latin America. That was a big problem. And this is one of the reasons why we saw social unrest before the pandemic and uh, also poverty. Uh, and then uh, what happens with the pandemic is basically that these two features tend to get even more and more acute, right? I mean, this happened all over the world. We know now that the, the main effect of the pandemic and the confinement that follow it um, is basically that people who were already in a very difficult social and economic situation um, tend to get worse, right? Uh, and, and this is particularly important for students in this country and for young people 
because the a scenario that was already difficult for them uh, tend to get worse after the pandemic. They don't have a space in the workforce for them now. They don't have access uh, to education because our public educational system is very poor. Um, so, so this is a very hard again um, uh, economic situation for them. Um, what happened with the with the tax reform is basically that the government. And I think that they they had a good intention in this. Uh, the government tried to uh, put forward this reform uh, with a main objective, a main goal in mind, which was basically to basically to collect money in order to, uh, you know, uh, pass subsidies to 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 uh, to people who were in the middle of this uh, economic crisis. And then uh, the problem was that they weren't very good about communications. Uh, they they didn't worry about the fact that they needed to construct a political coalition before putting forward this tax reform. So um, even their own party uh, opposed and criticized um, the reform. So the, the result was basically that people didn't understand what was going on. I mean, you you have to keep in mind that this tax, tax reform was a 200 pages thing that nobody was going to read, right? I mean, it, and it was very technical. This is... You you cannot ask public opinion um, in general to to familiarize themselves with this type of um, uh, of text. So the result was basically that people felt like they were trying to impose more taxes on them, and that in the middle of this economic situation that was completely unfair, and that they were not going to be able um, basically to handle all these demands by the state, especially middle classes. I guess um, were were very very um, you know very mad about uh, about what the government was trying to do because they were saying. And, and in this, they have an argument that, uh, you know, the most the, the richest part of the country was the one who was supposed to contribute to this. And instead, uh, the government was asking middle classes already in a very difficult situation to contribute. So, um, you know, the result is that miscommunication, arrogance by the government uh, resulted basically in, in that you know, the so in, in the social unrest that we're seeing right now, people are tremendously mad about their own situation, about the 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 ineptitude of the government. Um so so this is what we're seeing right now. And this is the reason basically why even though the government decided to withdraw the tax reform, uh people are still are still not happy about what's going on and they are still on the streets. Great. So um this is a Good segue to my second question, which is President Duque uh, approval ratings, which he seems to be very uh, unpopular. And you argued in your book that he, there was a perception that he's misrolling mis Colombia. So can you talk a bit about Duque's performance in office? Yeah, th this is a very particular issue, right? Because what you have normally, and this is this is not even a rule for Colombia; it's in general a rule uh, for presidents. Uh, the first year is the is what they call the honeymoon period, right? I mean, this is the this is the part of the government uh, in which uh, presidents tend to put forward as many reforms and initiatives as they have, to the extent that they know that this is the moment where they uh, uh, when they are going to have most uh, uh, the the, the biggest amount of approval by the public. Uh, so so it, it is very interesting because Duque didn't have that honeymoon period. I mean, uh, the, 
approval ratings for for Duque have uh, been tremendously low. Um, he had like a, a like a sort of parenthesis during the pandemic, uh, to the extent that you know, and this also happened all over the world. People basically had faith in in the executive, right? I mean, we we already know that when we're in the middle of an emergency, people tend to you know, believe that concentrating power in a single figure, uh, treating him as a savior, it's it's the only alternative that they have, right? So so to the extent that uh, we were confined and then the, the Congress wasn't working, the courts weren't working because we were all locked down, um, basically he started showing up every single day on TV and, uh, and this worked worth kind of well for him. Uh, I, I would identify another period, probably uh, the the moment where they proposed this cerco diplomatico, this, um, I don't know how you translate cerco, um, this, this uh, diplomatic closure on Venezuela. I don't know how you translate that, but but uh, he he had the initiative of recognizing uh, Juan Guaido as the as the president in Venezuela and to initiate a very strong international offensive uh to get rid of uh of the government the the maduro government in venezuela and for a very short period of time that um that that initiative was useful for him right i mean people started looking at him as someone with uh you know international initiative initiative with uh, with some kind of leadership um so i would say that those two periods were the only moments during the duke administration in which um his approval ratings were pretty good the rest of it uh, has been pretty, pretty bad uh, for a Colombian president. Um, and, and this is something that it's very interesting to the extent that Duque is part of a political party, the Centro Democrático, Democratic Center, um, led by former president Álvaro Uribe. And you have to remember that Álvaro Uribe ended his second administration with a 90% approval rate, right? I mean, so these, these are people who are used to very good approval ratings. They are they, they, they tend to be very popular or used to. Um, so it is very unusual. Uh, that you, we have a president coming from this um, this political uh, strand that uh, is not, um, you know, subject of, 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 you know, the love of the people, I would say. So it, it seems uh, that Venezuela is a flagship for this government to gain some uh, popularity. What is, the, is that rhetoric still working and what is the role of Venezuela in all of this? Recently, mm -hmm. Colombia's Minister of Defense reported that the protests were infiltrated by Venezuelan government. So what? how much of truth yeah. is there? Yeah, it, I think that Venezuela, well, Venezuela became an internal political issue for Colombia. This is not more, uh, this is not foreign policy anymore that we're talking about. Um, and the reason why this is, this is internal politics for us is, uh, due to various factors. The first one is that the Centro Democrático, and particularly Duque, um, they are very, very close to the opposition in Venezuela and, and not, not the moderate opposition in Venezuela. They are very, very close to the radical opposition in Venezuela, the ones who've been trying to... Um, 
to get rid of the uh, uh, of the government in Venezuela, not necessarily through democratic and institutional means, right? Um, so, so Duque comes to power with a very, very close alliance with uh, this radical wing in Venezuela. So, so his proposal to solve the Venezuelan crisis has never been. Uh, a negotiation proposal, for instance, right? I mean, he's never been uh, in favor of sitting with the government. He says that this has happened before, that the government doesn't respect dialogues, that they don't give guarantees, so that the best way to deal with this is just to impose a lot of pressure on Venezuela and, and basically kick out the government. This is this is this is the plan that they have. This this sort of alternative had a very good moment during the Trump administration. And 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 I would say at the begin at the beginning of the Trump administration, to the extent that Michael Bolton no, it's not Michael. What's his name? Bolton is John I, Bolton? Michael yeah. Bolton is the singer, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the horrible singer. Uh, well, you know, when Bolton and Trump started to to have a very, um, you know, militaristic approach to the Venezuelan crisis, to at some point they even threatened uh, with a military invasion. Right? They were talking about you would remember that the yellow pages uh, that Bolton show in a press conference saying, well, we're thinking about sending troops and all these things. Um, so so this was a, a great moment for Duque because having in mind exactly the same sort of um, solution for Venezuela, being in the same page with the Trump administration was a great thing for him. And and many Latin American governments at that, mom- at, at that point, and we're basically talking about the beginning of 2019, um, they they felt, and, and I guess I'm having in mind Piñera in uh, in uh, in Chile, and um, and maybe Peru too. Some some governments in the in the region felt that that this had momentum, right? That there, it was a great time to try to uh, get rid of the Maduro administration in Venezuela, and and consequently the leftist threat. Uh, on the rest of the the region, um, so they supported the the Duque initiative uh, through the the Lima group, and in for for I would say two or three months, um, and you might remember this this you know um, the, basically this uh, this long line of uh, of uh, Republicans in Cúcuta and uh, and and people from the Trump administration too supporting. Um, what Duque was trying to to do uh, with the humanitarian, um, you know, passing of uh, uh, of, of resources and and you know his attempt to weaken the the Maduro administration with the cerco diplomatico, um, this basically failed because they couldn't uh, they they couldn't topple the 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 regime and now uh, what we have is basically a Duque administration that doesn't want to talk about the Venezuela. Um, the Venezuelan crisis, um, mainly because their own proposal um, to solve the Venezuelan crisis didn't work. Um, it lost momentum. Now we have the Biden administration, and the Biden administration doesn't want to follow the same path that um, the Trump administration followed. Uh, the international community in general is in a different mood uh, vis-a-vis Venezuela. So you know, it's it's it, it's a bad. It's a bad timing for for what Duque wanted to do with Venezuela. So he stopped talking about Venezuela uh, after 
you know, the beginning of the pandemic, we've never heard about this, but it's but it's still an electoral device for them uh, because this is the way Venezuela is the way they found uh, the, the most effective way to weaken uh, leftist uh, political parties and alternatives in Colombia. Uh, they they say to people, they play with people's fear. Uh, so they basically say that, you know, the left in this country is going to be exactly the same thing that it was in Venezuela and that we're going to end exactly the same, end up exactly the same. Um, so, so they are using this as an electoral device at this point. Uh, very interesting. It seems that uh, this behavior from the right wing uh, in Latin America, as you mentioned, has had a sort of response uh, in the rest of the continent. So uh, you have uh, these governments, most governments, finishing their tenure next year. So we have Piñera in Chile, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Duque in Colombia, Pedro Castillo is already leading polls in Peru, uh, in Bolivia, uh, Evo Morales candidate Rizarse won elections and same happened in Argentina with Fernandez candidate. So in this sense, and also taking into consideration the protests uh, in 2019, do you see a pink tide rising again in Latin America? Hmm. It is hard to say, you know, because it seems that this, this very famous uh, pendulum theory, right? I mean, the, the, the region going from one side, uh, one ideological side to the other. I don't, I don't see that clearly how it's working right now. It seems to me, well, we need to know, you're right. We need to know, uh, we need to see what's going to happen with Brazil, um, and with, um, and with Colombia in the next in the next elections, uh, but it seems to me that what you're seeing is more fragmentation, right? I mean, a part of the region going left, another part of the region going right, and 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 some other governments that you really, if you try, you really have a very hard time trying to figure out where they are. I'm, I'm still. Mexico still blows my mind, right? I mean, this is what would you say? Is this a leftist government? I don't know. You know, I have I have strong doubts about it. Um, so so it's it's less clear to me uh, than it was probably ten or fifteen years ago, when basically the only country um, with a with a right uh, government was Colombia. Alvaro Uribe, at the end of it, was absolutely alone in the region, and this is one of the reasons why his uh, relationship with the U.S. Um, ended up being way stronger than it was supposed to be because he was alone. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure that this is what what we're seeing right now. Um, but we still have to wait um, and see what happens, for example, with social organizations and social unrest, uh, because, you know, people always ask, well, you think that, you know, this social unrest is good for the left in Colombia? I don't know. I don't I, I'm not quite sure, because to one extent, I think that uh, a lot of people are being activated politically and this is good for the left. You know, newer, um, uh, uh, newer voters are always better for them. Young voters, for instance, are always, uh, you know, going to be closer to them. But um, the fact is that we're in the middle of a, today is already the 12th day, you know, of a strike. And, and this is going to start to have strong effects on 
on people, you know, people are still are already having trouble to find groceries and food. And, you know, uh, it, it, it strikes tend to degradate with the pass of time. Uh, and this is not going to be good for the left if that happens. So, you know, it can it can go both ways here. So it can happen the same way in, in any other country. So I want to go back now to, to Colombia and mm -hmm. the side of uh, protesters. Uh, who who are they? Uh, mm. There's been several uh, different groups joining the protest. This seems unprecedented. Uh, you see uh, truck drivers, students, health workers, indigenous communities. What are they after? And how are they perceived? And most importantly, uh, if you could emphasize on this, Uh, do you see a generational change represented in the protests? Hmm. Yeah, um, uh, the, I think that the best way to answer that question is to compare what's going on on the street right now with what went on during the the, the strike in 2019. Um, because I think that the big difference is that in 2019, you saw the strike committee, which is a bunch of social organizations, right? Labor organizations, students, the usual, um, environmental organizations, feminist organizations. And, and, and it was a strike that was led by these organizations in a very effective way. I mean, they, they were the ones organizing people you know, using uh, social platforms. And and to that extent, I think that those, th that social mobilization was way more organized and a little bit less violent precisely because social organizations had a very important role. Uh, right now, we also have a, a strike committee, which is composed by the same social organizations. But the problem is that many, many of the people outside on the street protesting are not necessarily part of those social organizations right this is this is the big uh problem right now because um problem to the extent that if you want to have a dialogue you it's very it's really difficult to identify who you're supposed to have that dialogue with right um so um, so i'm thinking for instance young people right i mean in 2019 most of the young people that you saw on the street were students Uh, from universities, public and private, and they were talking about tuition rates and they were talking about access to public education, um, you know, so on and so on. Now, it's not students what we're seeing on the streets necessarily. And and, and, if, and, and, and at, the, at the strike comedy, you have a student, a couple of student organizations, but they do not necessarily represent many of the young people that you see on the street um, Because the people that you see on the street are people that don't even have access to education, right? I mean, these are not college students. These are people living in very difficult neighborhoods, in, in main cities, people who have no access to education, no access to the, to the labor force, and people who have a very, very and historical uh, difficult relationship with police. Uh, so, so this is more on the margins, right? And 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 to that extent, you have discussions and you see discussions constantly here saying, well, you know, the government wants to talk to people, wants to, to, 
to have like what they call a national conversation, right? Very grandiloquent. We need, we want to talk with all social forces and all these things. Uh, and then you see people on the street saying, well, you know, those people do not represent me. So if you want, go ahead and keep talking to them. But these are not the people who represent my interests and my political views. Um, so it's going to be very, very hard to try to articulate a conversation in which you represent them. And and then you have, you know, and and, and they were the, the, the main protagonists yesterday um, in Cali, indigenous organizations. Indigenous organizations have become, uh, have become a very, very, um, important uh, political force in Colombia. They are very organized. Um, every single time that they support the strike, uh, you know, that turns the strike way stronger than in the past. And yesterday in Colombia, we had this unfortunate um you know, a uh, uh, issue because uh, they were blocking some of the so, some of the main uh, roads uh, that go straight to Cali, one of the, our main cities, and uh, we saw something that you know it's 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 a very Colombian problem to say the least, uh, and we saw private citizens armed, uh, basically shooting uh, indigenous people, right, and and the public force, the the police being there and not doing anything. So 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 this is another big problem that we have here the privatization of of the use of the force, illegal privatization of the use of the force. Um that that you know we haven't been able to solve and it's it's just popping up now that that we have this uh, social unrest and this kind of disorder on the streets. Well this is a great segue to to my last uh, question which is might be the hardest one. Um, and it's precisely this uh, President Duque's kind of erratic behavior, talking to some leaders, to some uh, political actors, uh, some representatives of, of young population. Uh, but people in the streets, or the voices you mentioned of people in the streets, uh, hasn't been heard, or, or at least that it mm. seems. Uh, how can these uh, demands be heard or how can the government put an end to mm. these uh, protests? Uh, yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's the million dollar question, right? Um, in Spanish, you say a million pesos and it's way more, <laughs> <laughs> way, way less uh, horrible than a million dollar, <laughs> but still, um, I guess... Well, one of the problems is that, yeah, the, the government has to negotiate, right? We know that. Uh, what's what's the problem? First, that the government is in a very weak position right now. And, and to that extent, they don't want to have a conversation with people that seems that seem too challenging for them you know, political forces that that they feel challenged by because they are too weak. And and they are we're we're gonna get into this uh um you know presidential electoral election process very soon and and probably the Centro Democratico, the, the government's uh party want to wants to have a new president and and you know they don't they don't want to seem weak at the end of this story. So so they've been cherry picking social sectors and people that they can talk to uh without uh looking too weak right that's that's the the problem so for instance two days ago they had a a, a public conversation with 
uh, with, uh, you know, what they call uh, people who represent uh, young people and students, right? Who were these people? I mean, no idea. Uh, one was a person who works uh, as a columnist for El Tiempo, but he he's not part of the student organizations or any other social organization. And, you know, a, a whole bunch of people that people don't know who they are, right? So, so it's like they are trying, it's a very cosmetic thing uh, to do, right? And, and this is very, this is a very, you know, strong characteristic of this government. They, they tend to, 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 to present things, you know, in in a positive way, and they tend to present their initiatives, uh, but they are very weak when it's about finding real solutions for real problems. Um, so it's all representation, right? So for them, and um, and 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 the other issue, I guess, I mean, one issue is that they are too weak, so it's very difficult for them to have negotiations. And the other issue is that, uh, as I was saying before, it's it we know that these people that they're uh, bringing to 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 the governmental palace are not representative of anyone. Um, but when you ask, well, okay, then who represents people on the streets? That question is not very easy to answer either. Right, uh, because social organizations are important, but they are not the whole story. So, it, so this is a sort of a structural uh, obstacle that the government is going to have to overcome. I don't know how they are going to do that, um, but you know, this is uh, to the extent that people on the street don't feel that people like them are talking to the government, they are not going to feel that these dialogues and these conversations are, you know, uh, an exit to this crisis. And finally, I would say that as it happens with the rest of Latin America, political parties, political institutions in um in Colombia have lost a lot of credibility. So people do not feel represented by political parties or politicians. They feel like the 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 the, the establishment is is just basically something that has nothing to do with them. So so since we don't have this this communication channels between civil society and the government, then it's very difficult to see how what's going on on, on the streets with the social uh, organizations is going to turn into a solution in terms of public policy, right? I mean, our, our communi communication channels between civil society and the government are lost. So um, people don't believe in them anymore. And, um, and, and, and that makes conversation as a way to, to solve this crisis a very, very difficult thing to achieve. Uh, one last question, if I may, uh, because uh, I think this is very interesting. Uh, there's been rumors that the government is planning to declare uh, the state of internal disturbance and mm -hmm. that uh, perhaps there are also that the uh, Central Democratico Party is also trying to... Uh, Coop, uh, the, their own government. Uh, how is that true? How do you see that? Um, <laughs> no, I would say that in Colombia we're very fond of forms, <laughs> of uh, you know manners. Uh, so, so we 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 take pride in the fact that we've been the 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 oldest democracy in the region, and that we've never done this 
whole thing of, you know, uh, coups and, and all this unrest. And it, it's kind of funny and I laugh only because it's, it's all a matter of manners, right? I mean, it's not, this is not a very, you know, vibrant and profound democracy. And you can see that uh, just by listening to what the government and the elites are saying about the social unrest on the streets, right? I mean, they, they, they have no problem with validating things such as, you know, killing people because they are breaking windows. So, so I mean, you cannot call this a very strong democracy when people still think about that way of solving problems. But, um, you know, what What I do think, I, I don't think that we're going to have a coup. I, I think basically that doesn't make any sense for the armed forces because at this point they are doing whatever they want to do. So it's not like they feel constrained and they, they need more space to do what they want to do. I mean, they're killing people on the streets, the police. So, you know, why would they need more power if that's what they want to do? Um but I do think that the democratic center, the, the this governmental party, um, is feeling weak, uh, very weak, and they feel like they are going to have a, a very hard time for the next uh, election, and that basically means that they are going to use any single alternative that they have in hand in order to try to overcome that political weakness, um, and 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 we know what what they've done in the past and we know that they they are not very constrained by the whole you know rules of the game the democratic rules of the game or the constitution um they have a very flexible relationship with the uh with the rule of law so um so that's something that we need to be very careful uh you know because it's 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 very it, it, the the feeling that uh that weak in that and feeling in the corner after being such a powerful political force in this country might be what what it's what is pushing them uh to do unusual things to basically uh get back to power well thanks very much that was a, was a powerful insight um so that's that's it for today's episode uh i want to thank Sandra Borda for sharing her insights into the recent protests in Colombia. Uh, remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Professor Veronica Michelle Rinao for helping in the production of this episode and Christo Voinov for his technical assistance. I also want to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is Juan Acevedo saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Thank you, Sandra. No, thank you. That was great. That was great. Very good conversation, Juan. Thank you so much. <laughs>